All right. Well, um, I hope you were blessed uh, singing together-ish. Um, I'm standing back here in an empty hall, um, praising my heart out, and uh, it's good, uh, but I miss you guys. I know we have people joining us um, from BC to Ontario, from uh, Bonneville to Denver, so that's pretty cool, and, uh, and what a neat thing it is to gather um, this way. My kids thought it was pretty awesome that dad was going to be on TV this morning, and that they were going to watch the same time I was speaking, um, and uh, it, the Lord has blessed us with this technology, so we rejoice in that, um, but I hope through this season we come to appreciate what we have as we have the ability to gather together, and what it means, uh, the, the importance of the church. Um, and then we have this opportunity to, to encourage one another, and uh, I've just been eager, uh, eager to preach, uh, eager to share God's word with you um, in these uncertain times, and so thankful that we have a God uh, who does not change, and his word uh, does not change, and that it is faithful and true, and we find peace here uh, if there's one thing we have quite enough of these days, it's fear. Uh, there is fear all over the news. There's fear on Facebook. There is fear in the grocery store. Um, there's fear in your family, your friends, your neighbors. Um, there's fear rising up in the depths of our own hearts. Uh, it's everywhere. And we need to just be honest. Well, there certainly are different places where that fear has gotten carried away and gone overboard, it's not right to say that there's nothing to fear. That would be inaccurate. Um, this virus has proved itself significant. Uh, the numbers of those infected and those dying from it continue to increase. Um, the threat of our health uh, care system being overloaded, the threat to um, the vulnerable and the elderly among us um, continues to be significant. The economic impact of businesses closing, and I know some of you have jobs that are maybe lost, maybe on the line. Um, this is just the beginning. Um, the fear is real. And, and so instead of venturing into Philippians this morning, as we had planned to do, um, we're going to just pause and pull back and, uh, and ask the question, what does Jesus have to say in the midst of this fear? How does Jesus address our worries and concerns for our vulnerable loved ones, our crashing retirement fund, our own health and safety? Um, does Jesus have any real actual help in the middle of a pandemic? And, and I believe the answer from God's word is a clear, resounding, fear-crushing yes. So turn with me to John chapter 20. Um, we're going to look at verses 19 to 23. Um, if you don't have a Bible on you, slip up your hand and then take that hand and go get your Bible. Um, surely you have one somewhere in the house. Um, you have a minute now. Go and get it. You're, you're going to need it. Um, if you really don't have one, um, open a new window. Um, ESV.org is your new best friend. Um, you can find everything there. Um, a little context as we read. These passages, these, these verses come three days after Jesus died on the cross. Um, verse 19 opens saying, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, that day is the Sunday, the, the Sunday that Jesus rose from the grave. 
And uh, he had already appeared that morning to Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to Peter and then later to the two men walking on the road to Emmaus. And now finally he's appearing to the disciples gathered. Probably 10 out of the 12, Judas has betrayed Jesus and gone. Um, We know that Thomas was not there. Um, And it's not clear, but I think as I'm looking at this uh, account in the book of Luke, it seems there's other disciples there as well. Uh, I don't think it's just the 10. But here's what happened. Let's, uh, let me read it for you. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you that it is sure and trustworthy in uncertain times. Thank you that you are sure and trustworthy in uncertain times. God, help us now. Lord, there are many who are fearful, who are anxious, who are hurting. God, we long to hear the words of Jesus, peace be with you. Would you give us your peace this morning as we come to your word? Lord, you have promised that you fill the hungry with good things. Lord, we lean into that promise this morning. Give us hope. Lord, be with me as I speak. Give me your words that I might be an encouragement to your church and that they might see and know your truth and your hope this morning in a new way. Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First thing I want us to see this morning in this passage is that Jesus gives peace in the fear. And, and the point I want to make is maybe one that you would not expect. Jesus comes to them in their fear, and he doesn't remove it from them. He doesn't take them out of it. He comes to them in the midst of their darkness. Now let's just take a minute and step back and see what is their darkness, what is the situation that they're in, they're hiding. They're together uh, in the room with the doors barred. Sound familiar? (laughs) They're they're social distancing. They are even self-isolating. But not for fear of a virus, it's for fear of the Jews. Think about what had happened over these past few days. Put yourself in the shoes of of one of these disciples. You had given everything to follow Jesus. Left your fishing business. Left a profitable career as a tax collector. Left your home. Left your town. Left your family behind. Followed after this Jesus as he preached. There had always been tension between him and the Jews, but Jesus had always been able to diffuse it somehow. But last Thursday night, 
So this is Sunday evening, last Thursday. Judas, one of your brothers, one of the tight-knit 12 that you trusted, betrayed Jesus, sold him out to the Jews, and, and sure enough, they came. This mob carrying weapons and torches, and they arrested Jesus, and, and so began this tsunami of unbelievable events just swirling out of control. You and the other disciples ran, fled into the night. Some, I'm sure, spent the night hiding under a bush in the garden. Others maybe uh, at a friend's house, laying low. Certainly, many did not sleep. Surely, they thought, the high priest. I mean, he, he's no fan of Jesus, sure, but, but he won't allow this to go on, will he? Surely, he will stand for justice. But no, the high priest facilitated an illegal court in the middle of the night, heard obviously false charges against Jesus and overlooked it and passed it through. But the Romans, the Romans have no dog in this fight. They would stand for law and order, right? They would keep this from continuing. But as the Jews took Jesus to Pilate, the the Roman official, they rallied this frenzied crowd who gathered around screaming with bloodthirsty cries, crucify him, crucify him. How how could this be? How could this happen? Things changed so fast. And before you could even wrap your mind around the reality of what was happening, Jesus had been summarily tried, convicted, nailed to the cross. He's dead. It's over. Your whole life, not just the last three years, but everything you believed, everything you were brought up in as a child that you'd come to hope in, it's gone. It's unraveled in front of your eyes. And if they could do that to Jesus, how easy will it be for them to now pick off his key followers? Nothing was certain. Nothing was safe. They had good reason to fear. They were not cowardly or foolish to be hiding away behind a locked door. And we expect Jesus to come and turn the tables, right? If if Jesus is going to show up, certainly it will be the Jesus from Revelation, the Jesus who comes on a white horse with a sharp sword and, and sets things right, destroys his enemies. But he doesn't do it. That's not how he comes. He comes to them in their fear, miraculously somehow coming through the locked door. And he doesn't take them out. He doesn't wipe out their enemies or transport them to somewhere safe. He stands among them. We so often focus on the fear, the things that threaten us physically, spiritually, financially, And we think, Jesus, just get me out of this. Give me peace by removing me from this situation. Make the threat go away. But so often, as it was for the disciples, the Lord's plan is not to remove us from the fear, but to meet us in it. To come into that dark, locked room of our fearful hearts and to stand with us and offer peace. Peace in the middle of the trial. It's not wrong 
to pray that the Lord would remove this pandemic, that it would pass quickly. It's not wrong to pray that he would provide a new job or continuing work or whatever it is. Um, Absolutely, bring those requests to the Lord. He cares about those. But if our peace hinges on him answering those prayers the way that we want him to, if our peace hinges on him removing the trial, then it was never a true peace anyways. It would only ever have been as frail as a new job. It would only ever have been as weak and frail as as the false security of temporary restored health. God's design, His purpose is so often not to take us out of the trial, but to meet us right in the middle of it. Don't be so caught up looking for a way out that you miss the fact that Jesus wants to meet you here. Do you believe that? Jesus wants to meet you in this time. James 1 Chapter 2, or verse 2, you, you know it. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. This is it. This is a trial that fits the category of various kinds. For you know that, he's, that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and steadfastness has its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, not lacking in anything. James believes this. He so believes this that he actually has a sense of joy with coming trials. Knowing that that in the trial is where Jesus will meet him. That that in that time of uncertainty is where he will find peace. His faith will be tested. That, That word tested would probably be better translated proven. It's shown to be true. His faith would bear fruit when Jesus met him in the trial where he would have true peace when there was no earthly peace. Let me encourage you as you look to the days, weeks, months ahead, there's a lot of uncertainty. Things are changing hour by hour. And it's natural, it's, it's okay to have that healthy amount of fear. But trust and, and even anticipate what God wants to do in this season what he wants to do in your heart as he tests and proves your faith, as he calls you to trust him in new ways, giving you a renewed depth of of steadfastness that you wouldn't have had without this trial. Jesus gives us peace in the fear. And he does that because Jesus gives peace over the fear. Look at the end of verse 19 beginning of verse 21. It says, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Peace be with you. His first words to his new disciple to his disciples after his resurrection he met them in their fear and now he's offering them a peace over their fear peace be with you is this standard greeting it often meant nothing more than we mean when we say how's it going Uh, it's just the thing that we say but not this time 
No, Jesus chose these words so carefully, and the disciples would have heard so much more than just this standard greeting. Because their risen Lord stood in their midst and declared, Peace be with you. He was, after all, prophesied in Isaiah to come as the Prince of Peace. He was announced at his birth by angels saying, Peace on earth and goodwill toward men. And here he stands at the end of his life saying, Peace be with you. And and so gently, understanding the weakness of his disciples, he doesn't rebuke them in any way. He doesn't chastise them for their fear. He condescends to their weakness, bringing them this peace, encouraging them. And he knew this this was not going to be easy for them. He understands that peace is not, not easy to come by in the midst of tribulation. And so what does he do? He shows them his hands and his side. He gives them this this physical representation of the peace that they have, proving it to them. And then the disciples were glad. After examining his body, after seeing this wounded but resurrected Jesus, then they have peace. Think about that. Wounded but resurrected. That's huge. What did they see in this wounded but resurrected body that made them glad? Well, the first thing they saw in the presence of Jesus in the midst of their fear uh, is that they have peace with God. There are two ways that they know they have peace with God, looking at Jesus' wounded and resurrected body peace with God because of his in his wounds they saw their condemnation we so often overlook it especially in times of outward crisis our our biggest problem the number one thing that ought to keep us up at night is not coronavirus it's not potential job loss it's not financial ruin it's not cancer or old age or any of those things Our biggest problem is that we're sinners and God is holy. You may or may not contract COVID-19, but you will most certainly stand before the judgment of God. And none of us, not one of us, meets His standard of holiness. No one is righteous, not even one. And that puts us at war with the perfect holiness of God. And that's a war that he's going to win. He will judge sinners. But Jesus, in showing the disciples his wounds, is saying, look, I took your judgment. Your condemnation is on me. You can have peace with God. Isaiah 53, 6, We all like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In his wounds they see their condemnation taken by Christ. But then in his life they see their confirmation. They see hope. If Jesus had simply died and and been relegated to the archives of history from that point on, uh, we wouldn't be talking about him today. 
What confidence would we have and, and what reason would we have to hope in a, in a dead Savior? What peace would that offer? But we don't have a dead Savior. We have a risen Savior. And in fact, the fact that He is risen is proof that His sacrifice was sufficient, that that condemnation was paid for in full. The wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve. That's what our sin deserves. And in the death of Jesus, death is defeated. He he drains the wrath of God out from death so that we can have life after death. His resurrection is proof of it. It's the stamp of, of God's approval, the stamp of God's acceptance that we can have peace with God in this wounded, resurrected Savior. They see peace with God. It's Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Listen to me. No other peace is more important than this. Nothing else matters more than this. If you don't have peace with God, you don't have peace. You might have this perfect shell of a life going on and everything looks great, but but you don't have true peace and you will not have peace into eternity. You will have the judgment of God. But Jesus came to offer peace with God by trusting in Him, turning from our sin to Christ. He offers forgiveness reconciliation, a peace that that is over and above, that supersedes all of the chaos of this world, a peace that we so desperately need. In the wounded and risen body of Jesus, we have this peace with God. Now listen to me. If that's something that you're wrestling with, if you don't know that you have that peace with God, I want you to just send us a direct message to the church. It's going to be answered. You're going to get a message back. Um, Send a a message with your name and your phone number and one of our elders will call you and follow up with you and pray with you and talk with you. Um, We want everyone who hears this to come out with that peace for sure. And it's only in having that peace with God that we can then have the peace of God. Philippians 4-7 speaks of this peace. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's in Jesus, it's trusting in Him, it's walking with Him that we can have the peace of God, a peace that that surpasses all understanding. It's a peace that, that doesn't make sense in our world. It doesn't add up. If you're running this through your worldly calculator, it doesn't make any sense. Because it's not a peace by taking the fear away. It's not a peace by fixing the situation here. It's a peace that's over that. It's outside of that. I hear a lot of people trying to be optimistic in these days. Hopeful. They say, don't worry. This will pass. This will be short-lived. And when this virus is gone, we're going to wake up one sunny morning and the stores will be open. We'll be giving each other hugs and high fives and and jobs will be returned and the stock market is going to come back stronger than ever and and everything is going to be okay. And I am so heartbroken and fearful for those people. That's a terrible situation to be in. 
Because that optimism will leave you disappointed. If that's where your hope is, if that's where your confidence lies, it will be crushed. This virus may pass quickly. I don't know. But one day it will be gone. But you know what won't be gone? Sickness, disease, death, financial hardship, futility and work, broken relationships, broken families, pain and suffering. This world was a hurting, broken place long before COVID-19, and it will be a hurting, broken place after. We need a peace that gets us out of the muck and the mire of this world. We need a peace that is outside of this world. We need the peace of God. We need a peace that passes all understanding, that can't be touched by coronavirus or by the constant assault of suffering and pain and death in this world because that's what this world has to offer. And the peace of God that Jesus offers is just that. In showing his disciples his wounded but resurrected body, Jesus is making all kinds of theological statements about hope and peace and the peace of God. I'm reminded of a a sermon from Jonathan Edwards, his first sermon, 18 years old, um, entitled Christian Happiness. And and so his point is that Christians ought to be happy. And and we throw happy around as this light word, but but the Jewish understanding of peace is is tied with this idea of happiness. It's not just a lack of war. It's this idea of fullness and rest and wholeness and joy, this this idea of shalom. It's it's all-encompassing. And so when Jesus says, peace be with you, and he, and he shows them his risen body, that's what he's promising. Shalom. And there are three points to Edward's sermon that, uh, that I just couldn't get away from because they fit so perfectly into exactly what Jesus is proving by his wounded and risen body. He says that Christians ought to be happy um, for three reasons. Because our bad things will turn to good because our good things can never be taken away and the best is yet to come. So our bad things will be turned to good. In the the wounded but risen body of our Savior, it proves that our bad things will be turned to good. His wounds, Jesus' death on the cross, show that the the most wicked evil ever accomplished in this world, the cruel crucifixion of the perfect Son of God, But the resurrection shows that God used it to accomplish the greatest good the world has ever seen. It's bad things turn to good. The salvation of countless of sinners. God is not disconnected from our suffering. It's not that He doesn't care about suffering. It's that He can and will use all suffering for our good as His children. Even our joy. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, those who are called according to His purpose. Our bad things will be turned to good. Not only that, but a wounded and risen Savior also proves that our good things can never be taken away. 
And, and that's speaking of our, our salvation, our justification before God, our, our adoption as His children, our position as heirs in His kingdom. They, they can't be taken. Even death, which steals everything from this world from us, will not be taken. They will not take the good things that God gives. They will outlast death. They're not bound by this world. So our, our bad things turn to good, our good things never taken, and the best is yet to come. The resurrected body of Jesus, wounded and risen, shows that the, the best is yet to come. His resurrection is said to be the first fruits of all who trust in Him. It's like the first apple to go ripe on the apple tree, the first head of grain to pop in the spring that shows the rest is coming, and it will come in like kind. That's what Jesus is promising for all those who follow Him. John 14, 19, Jesus says, Because I live, you too will live. This world will constantly hurt us, will constantly promise joy and peace and fall flat and come crashing down. This life in a world that is unraveling because of our sin is destined to be filled with pain and sorrow and hurt. That ought not surprise us. But the resurrection of Jesus tells us the best is yet to come. This is not our home. This short life of, of 80, 90, maybe 100 years, if you're lucky, was never going to satisfy. It was never going to make you truly happy. And all those things that we long for and strive after in this world, it, it comes to one of two results. Either we get them and find that they never actually satisfy, and so we keep moving the bar and setting it higher and higher and higher, or we spend our whole life chasing them, thinking if we ever could get there, then it would make us happy. But we never find that joy. We never find that fulfillment. We never find shalom. But we have hope of an eternity of shalom an eternity of joy and happiness in and with the Lord. No more suffering, no more sorrow, no more death for a million millenniums to come. That's what we're looking forward to. That's where my joy is set. I'm not looking to get filled up here. I'm not looking for this world to satisfy me. There are great blessings here that we get to enjoy along the way. But my home is ahead. My joy is coming. And we ought to be able to find this peace in knowing that, that in the wounded and resurrected body of Jesus that our, our bad things will be turned to good, our good things can never be taken away, and the best is yet to come. Those truths don't remove us from the trial. They don't take away coronavirus. They don't put money into your bank account but they ought to give us a peace that supersedes all of that. Um, later down in Romans, after, uh, in chapter 8, uh, after he has told us that, that God works all things for our good, then uh, verses 35 to 39, he says this, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Huge, huge question. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or coronavirus or cancer or anything else? As it is written, 
Paul says, for your sake we're being killed all day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Can these things separate us from the love of God? Can they cut us off from His care? And here's Paul's answer. No. No, they can't. In all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation would be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the hope that we have. That's the peace that we have that cannot be taken away. But, but notice, he says, it's in all these things. It's in the midst of it. We're not removed from them. This list here is autobiographical for Paul. He faced distress and persecution and famine and nakedness and danger and sword. He lived that. God didn't remove those things from him. But he gave him a hope, a peace in Christ that was over all of it. Knowing that in Christ we are more than conquerors over these things. That's the peace that Jesus gives. A peace that rules over fear. This peace with God, this peace of God. How do we get it? How do we get there? I want to have that peace of God in my life through this season. What do I do? Well, what did the disciples do? How did they get it? They looked at Jesus. Notice they they didn't have that peace right away. Jesus comes and says, peace be with you, and obviously that doesn't do the job. So he shows them his body. They, They examine him, and it's after they've looked at him and seen his wounds and seen his resurrection body, then they are glad. Then they see it. Church, look at Jesus. Don't be surprised when you lack peace. Don't just take your feelings passively as they come, as if we're helpless victims to our feelings. Take control. As that that new song we sang sings, I'm going to preach to my fear. I'm going to talk to my doubt. Work for peace by looking at Jesus, by reading His Word and finding out who He is and what are His promises, what's true about Him. Look at his wounded and resurrected body and ask, what does that mean for me? Think about these things. Going back to Philippians 4.7, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's our heart and our minds rooted in Christ, buried deep in him. That's where we're untouchable. Isaiah 26.3, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Stop frantically focusing, staying your mind on the fear of the, of the news and, and social media and everything that's swirling on around us. Stop trusting and stop looking for hope and peace and joy in the things of this world. Stay your mind on the Lord and put your hope and your trust in Him. That's what we need. There we find peace. Even joy outside of and over all the fears of this world. 
So Jesus gives us peace in the fear. And he gives us a peace that is over our fear. But then look at what he does next. He sends us with peace into the fear. Verse 21. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So Jesus brings them peace, and then he sends them out with that peace. All four Gospels have their own um, reiteration of the Great Commission, and, and this is John's. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Early in the book of John, one of the best known verses in the Bible, we see the mission of Jesus. We see why God sent Jesus. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. There it is. That's why Jesus came. That's why God sent his son and how God sent his son. And in the same way, Christ is sending us the same message, the same purpose, so that all those who believe in Christ should not perish but have eternal life. It's peace. It's peace with God. We're sent out with this message, church. We have received this amazing peace that that supersedes a, a world of suffering. And then we go out to offer it into the world. And when Jesus said these things, he breathed on them. That's weird. It's not social distancing approved. Um, Don't you dare, John, come to my house and breathe on me after this. It's okay. Um, But Jesus breathed on them, and then he said, receive the Holy Spirit. Um, And we got to pause here. There's a lot of confusion around this. Um, There's a lot of bad and damaging doctrine that comes out from misunderstanding this passage. Some will teach that the disciples received the Holy Spirit at this point, uh, but they didn't receive the fullness of the Spirit. They didn't receive the ability to do miracles and speak in tongues until Acts 2. And, And so they would say there are many Christians who live there kind of partially filled, but don't have the gifts, don't have the fullness of the Spirit, and they need that. There's this kind of hierarchy of Christianity, a hierarchy of spirit-filledness. Everyone needs to have their own personal Pentecost. That's not what's going on here. Um, I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole, but Luke 24, 48, um, this same narrative, the same set of stories, um, Jesus appeared to them in the locked room, and then he tells them this, you are witnesses of these things, telling them, you're going out, you're taking this peace, he's sending them. And behold, I am sending you the promise of my Father upon you, that's the Holy Spirit. But stay in this city until you're clothed with power from on high. Implication? After this locked room story, they still don't have the Holy Spirit. He's saying, wait here. And then what will they have when the Holy Spirit comes? What ability will the Holy Spirit give them? They'll be witnesses. Acts 1.8, more than 40 days later, Jesus says to them in a similar situation, a similar room in Jerusalem, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. 
and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Implication, the Holy Spirit had not yet come. They're waiting for Pentecost. And when he does come, what will be the most important thing that he's empowering them to do? What is the most significant thing? You'll be my witnesses. So here's John. As Jesus, telling this story, Jesus breathes on the disciples. Jesus does not in that moment give them the Holy Spirit in some kind of half-measure, weak way that has no effect, that leaves them fearful and powerless and immobilized. How pathetic is that? No, he's promising, this is what it will be when I give you my Spirit. This is what is going to happen. And and it's interesting, um, the Greek word pneuma, um, it means both spirit and breath and, and wind. And, and, and so you expect, as, as you read through this verse, to see that word twice. And there'd be a play on words, right? Jesus breathed on them and they received the, the spirit, the breath, the same word. But that's not what's here. Um, the word Jesus uses, when it's, when, when it, or the word John uses, when it says Jesus breathed on them, is epsumsao, which is a weird word, uh, a word that doesn't show up anywhere else in the entire New Testament. But it's interesting, it does show up uh, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. John, you're really getting the weeds now. I know, but this is cool. Um, My my nerds are loving it. Some of you, you'll come back in a minute. Um, Genesis 2-7. What's in Genesis 2-7? The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground, and he breathed, there it is, into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. John is making this huge theological statement. Jesus is saying, I've created a new humanity, a new creation, a new man, no longer in Adam, now in Christ, and its breath of life is going to be the Holy Spirit. My spirit will be the life-giving spirit inside the church, enabling and empowering you to go out to take this peace to a world of brokenness. Not on your own strength, not in your own power, your own wisdom, empowered by the very Spirit of God. Verse 32 then reminds us of the nature of this mission on which we have been sent. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. Now, this doesn't mean that we have the power to forgive sins. Or as the Catholic Church began to teach after this, that that the apostles and therefore the popes as their successors have the ability to forgive or withhold forgiveness. The Pharisees were wrong about a lot of things, but they were bang on when they said only God can forgive sins. The language here uh, in the Greek for is in the past perfect tense. And so it's saying if you forgive someone their sins, their sins, past perfect, will have been completed, forgiven. This is about making a declaration of forgiveness in line with the gospel that we proclaim. That's where, that's where this hope is. It's the, it's the proclamation of peace with God. And, and, and nowhere do we see apostles forgiving sin but we see them over and over again declaring that there is forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Acts 3, 19-20, Repent therefore and turn back to God that your sins may be blotted out and times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Acts 13, 38, 
Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. That's our authority. That's the power we have to proclaim the forgiveness of sins to all who believe. To say with Paul to our our neighbors, our co-workers, our family and friends that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We can assure people and give them this confidence. If you have repentance and faith, you have forgiveness. You have peace with God. Church, this is our mission. This is what God has empowered you with his Holy Spirit to go out and do. Having had our Lord come to us in our fear, having that peace over fear given to us, we now, like like the heroic firefighter fully clad in all of his protected gear, like a warrior dressed in impenetrable chainmail, we go back into the flames, back into the battle, carrying hope and peace and salvation. What an amazing task. Having our own peace secured in Christ given life and strength by the Holy Spirit, carrying this message of the gospel to a world that so desperately needs it. The Chinese character for crisis uh, is a combination of the symbol for danger and opportunity. That's where we live. This is a dangerous opportunity. Uh, One of my fellow GCC pastors said last week that, that God is cutting off the heads of the idols of this world. I think he's bang on. They have put their hope in health, in wealth, in career, in success, in control, in social status, and God is just crushing all of that. He's bringing it crashing down all around them. And and so we now live in a world this week, significantly more than even last week, maybe more than, than in how many years previous, surrounded by people who realize My thing's not working. This this whole sphere of my life that I've been giving everything to, it's it's collapsed and there's there's nothing. They're striving for peace, for wholeness, for joy, and they're realizing that, that striving for that in all these worldly things is a fool's errand. They're even thinking about death and perhaps judgment and an afterlife. And they're open to talk. I've heard from a number of people in our congregation already about conversations that have happened with, with neighbors and coworkers that a week ago would have been unthinkable. But, but now, boy, that conversation's right there to be had. Church, our world is hurting. They're aware of their, their frailty. They're aware of their need for a deeper hope that is outside this broken world in a uniquely powerful way. What would have happened if those disciples would have received that peace from Jesus and then just stayed huddled in that room, not left that place? Let's just hang out here. The church would never have spread. The gospel wouldn't have gone out. We wouldn't be gathered here today. But the day came when they were filled with the Holy Spirit, they were emboldened and empowered to go into the danger of the Jews, proclaiming hope, forgiveness, peace. And they turned the world upside down. 
And the church exploded. And and the the immediate result was 3,000 people added to their number in one day. And and the long-term result is continuing to reverberate out to the ends of the earth to this day. I'm not saying that we ignore the recommendations of our authorities, that we break the, the social distancing. Not at all. Not at all. We, we want to spread the gospel, not the virus. So make a phone call. Do a Skype call. Get on Facebook. Do what you need to do. Stay six feet away. But now is the time to be connecting with our neighbors, to be reaching out to our coworkers. How are you doing? Can I pray for you? Do you need anything? Hey, here's a Bible verse that I read that has encouraged and strengthened me. Jesus gives peace in our fear. Jesus gives us this peace over our fear, and then he sends us out with peace into the fear. Let's go, church, on mission with the gospel for the glory of God. Let me pray. Father, we need your peace. Thank you that you sent Jesus. Thank you that we can see his wounded and resurrected body and know that we have peace with you and know that we can have your peace. God, again, I pray for those listening um, who are anxious and fearful. Calm their hearts. Lord, stay their minds on you. Help them to trust in you. God, help us through this season. And in your mercy, you have You have struck down the idols that even crept into our own lives of of security and health and we've we've so easily let our, our joy get wrapped up in the things of this world and you're removing those things. Lord, help us to put our trust in you and to find that peace in you. And God, give us boldness. Give us courage as you have sent us out into this world as ambassadors of peace. Lord, that we might be tools for reconciliation, that you would save many through this, God, that the the lasting impact of this pandemic on our world would be a revival. Start it with us, Lord. Start it with our neighbors and our coworkers and our families, that your name would be praised as we proclaim the glory of the peace of Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.